Are you looking to buy or sell a home? Wondering where to start? Do you have questions about mortgage and real estate and need honest, accurate answers? Well, you're in the right place. Welcome to The Educated Home Buyer with expert real estate broker, Jeb Smith, and certified mortgage consultant, Josh Lewis, where we discuss everything you need to know to buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership. Welcome back to the Educated Home Buyer Live. Uh, you, uh, those of you who show up here every week, will notice we are uh, something a little different this week. We are one man light. Uh, Mr. Educated Home Buyer himself, uh, Jeb Smith, is not going to be able to make it today. He's come down with some sort of a flu bug, and that is especially uh, unfortunate here this week as we have been looking forward to uh, to today for the better part of a month. We've talked about how the biggest thing impacting interest rates and the bond markets uh, over the last six months yeah, we're in six months. So going back to June of this year, the big figure, the big report that's been coming out and moving markets is the CPI report. This month, we got a double whammy. And then we had CPI released yesterday. And on the heels of that, we had the final Fed meeting of the year. So not a whole lot of drama. It was pretty much telegraphed. Um, but I wanted to share some slides with you guys here uh, and show you what happened. Uh, where the market went from that and what we can expect going forward into next year. Um, again, because I'm going to be here by myself. Uh, if you can make it easy, if you have questions, post questions in the comments. Um, if you can mark it with question, question in all caps, uh, just the question part, and then uh, type out your question and we will get to them. Alex, I see your question. Let's go through this stuff uh, and then I'll jump into that. So again, any questions that you have, throw them up there. Uh, after we go through this, we'll jump into it. Not sure how long we'll be here tonight. We'll see how many questions you guys have. If you are in a position of asking questions and you're wanting to know about specific real estate markets, remember uh, Jeb is the expert in that area and definitely has a big network of folks around the country in his coaching group, in his sphere of influence that he talks to all the time. So that's going to be better uh, better for when we get Jeb back. So uh, if you want to focus on mortgage-related questions, interest rate-related questions, uh, economic questions tonight, and we'll be happy to, to get to them. So let's jump in here and let me share. We're going to add this to the stream. Okay. If you guys remember, uh, what, probably 45 days ago or so, right before the November meeting, when we got the October read for CPA, CPI, we showed this chart. And what we showed is the three months, the four months here from October, November, December, January, and into February are high reads for CPI that would be falling off last year likely to be replaced with lower reads for this year. We saw that last month. We had a 0.6 fall off replaced by a 0.3. So we saw inflation come down when you look at the year over year basis. Well, we saw a similar miss or a, a decrease a 0.5 falling off for November replaced by a 0.2. So again, year over year inflation coming down. Now, what we're looking at is again, remember inflation is highly elevated, whether we're at 5%, 6%, 7%, that is well above what the Fed's comfort level is. One thing that I do wanna point out here, this chart that we're looking at is core CPI. Um, core strips out food and energy. It strips out food and energy, even though those are important expenses and large portions of everyone's household budget. The core CPI strips that out because it's not really in the, the control of the government. Fed can't control it. They can hike rates all they want. Oil's going to cost what it's going to cost. 
food is going to cost what it's going to cost. So it's interesting to see here that despite OPEC reducing output, despite uh, Russian oil being offline for many parts of the world or being sold at discounts in other parts of the world, that fuel has continued to come down, food has remained high. So we're seeing decreases even at the core level when we had a thought or a concern that we would see headline inflation but uh, decrease, but not the core. But we are seeing that. Now, if you look forward, um, when we get a January CPI report covering December, the January release for December, we have another big number, a 0.6 falling off. And we're likely to be in this 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0.3% range here month over month. So we are likely to continue to see improvement in interest rates. So let's take a look here. What I wanted to show you, this is the 10-year treasury in the last two trading days. It encompasses all of the data that we're talking about. Yesterday's CPI release. So CPI is released at 5.30 in the morning uh, Eastern time. So 8.30 for us here, uh, or 5.30 for us, 8.30 for them on the East Coast. So 5.30 in the morning before we even start trading, that figure is released. This green candle shows that treasuries dipped a ton. We went from uh, up just a hair over 3.6 all the way down to 3.42 um, in this 15-minute trading window and then settled out at about 3.47. By the end of the day, we're a little bit higher right there at 3.50. So the line here is the mark of, of the day. The mark in the middle of that chart is the transition from yesterday into today. So today's trading, we pretty much went sideways all the way until you see that green arrow. Fed announcement came out at 11 o'clock today. Fed did exactly what everyone expected. They raised only a half percent. We say only a half percent. Historically, that has been a huge move, but we were coming off months and months and months or three to four meetings of three quarter point hikes. We, uh, we actually looked at that with some relief. So you'll see then uh, we spiked here a little and the reason for that is although the expectation was for 0.5 and the Fed delivered a 0.5, they also do what's called a dot plot chart. They only release that four times a year. Today's release uh, included or today's Fed meeting and, and release of the minutes um, actually showed that dot plot. And we're going to get to it in a minute. And that was a little bit more aggressive than what the market was expecting. So thinking that rates may go up more and we say rates, Fed funds rates, may increase more going forward than previously expected. Um, the rest of the day, you can see yields dropped and closed near the lowest levels of the day around 348, 349. And the reason for that is after the announcement, about a half hour later, Fed Chair Powell comes to the mic and he gives a prepared statement and he takes questions. And in going through that, he said some things that the market actually liked and thought were positive for interest rates going forward. So. This here, um, just wanted to show, to kind of show you this range. Going back here, this is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. about 10 trading days. So going back about two weeks, we've been in this fairly defined trading range on the 10-year. With the, the yield hits 3.64, it's gone down and improved. When it hits down here and gets to 3.43, it goes up and gets worse. So we're right in the middle of this range. Doesn't tell us a lot for the, the future direction of rates, other than you can see the trend going back, uh, you know, a month since uh, since before, or a couple of days before uh, the last CPI uh, announcement in November, we've seen a nice little downtrend. So expectation would be for them to move in that direction, but we're, we're right in the middle of a range and could go either direction in the short run. So this chart here, what I wanted to show you guys with this, um, the scale on here, just ignore it because it's hard to make sense of it. 
but we talk all the time. You know, whenever we have a Fed announcement, we will get a bunch of questions. Hey, the Fed hiked half percent. How high are rates going up? Or, hey, I'm so glad I locked yesterday because the Fed hiked rates a half percent today. That's not how mortgage rates work. We actually showed here Fed hiked 10-year Treasury yields down a, a little bit today. And what we can look at is Fed funds futures. That's betting in the futures markets of what the Fed is likely to do. Now, we just talked that we're going to look at the dot plot, which is what the Fed thinks they're going to do over the next three years. And the Fed funds futures is what the market thinks the Fed is likely to do. So this tells us that in June of 2023, that the market expects the Fed funds rate to be under 5%. But the important part is interest rates as measured here, the green line is mortgage rates, the blue line is the 10-year treasury. Both of those track really closely to Fed funds futures. The futures markets are watching the Fed, listening, looking at data and making bets on what they think is gonna happen going forward. So these lines all move pretty darn closely uh, to one another. And what we're seeing here is Fed funds futures starting last month are starting to trend down. The market thinks the Fed is near the end of their rate hike cycles and will decrease. Now, you're going to see again here in some of Chair Powell's remarks that it gives us some insight into what they're thinking and how that's likely to play out. But let's just dig into it. So this chart here is just every member of the Fed gets to put in what their expectation is for interest rates in 2022, 2023, 2024, 2025, and longer run. So we're gonna look at this and there's a highlighted portion in three different slides here. So the first one, this is from September of 2021. So a year ago, they were saying, hey, for 2022, the most aggressive Fed member thought we were gonna be approaching three quarters of a percent in the Fed funds rate. We're at 5%. I mean, that's that's crazy that that's what they were, were looking at. The most aggressive says in 2023, next year, uh, we're looking at 1.7. I'm actually getting ahead of myself. So let's go to the, I'll go to the next slide on that. But this is where we ended up here in 2022. This was the expectations. This is what they were expecting for the end of 2022 in September of 2022. 3.75, four, four and a quarter, four and a half. So you can see much higher. They were off by a full three and a half, four percent on on where interest rates were at. So let's look and we look at 23 and 24. The projection here is the most aggressive Fed members in September of 2021 were saying we might might get over one and a half by the end of, of, of 2023. And now they're saying we're going to end 2023 somewhere around 5%. Uh, 2024, more aggressive. They thought they could keep hiking and get to almost 3% by the end of 2024. And now we're seeing they expect to have trended down. And a few of them think we might get down to 3% from there. The last piece I wanted to show here is longer run expectation. So a year ago, they were saying, we're going to hike and it's going to take us about three years to get up to that longer run expectation of somewhere around two and a half percent. Now, a year later, they're saying, hey, we're hiking. We're going to keep them relatively high. By 2024 and 2025, we'll get back down to that same long-term trend of about two and a half. So big picture, what can we take away from this? The Fed does not know a whole heck of a lot about where they're going to end their terminal rate or what they're going to do going forward. They were very wrong last year. They're likely to be wrong this year about how long rates will remain elevated. But uh, that's why we play the games. We're going to watch out for the next couple of years and see how this actually plays out. So again, we talked about 
what were the takeaways from Powell's press conference today? What did he actually say? So we've been saying this for a while, and he finally came out today. The highlighted part there in green, expect very large drop in inflation next year, but the jump off point at the beginning of the year is higher. So they think inflation is going to drop a lot, but we're going to be starting from a really high level. So again, saying, cool, inflation is dropping and likely to drop quickly, but it could drop quickly and fairly far and still be above their 2% comfort level. The next one is also important. People were worried with what Chair Powell had said in the last month and several other Fed uh, board members had said that we were looking at a period where they were comfortable massively increasing the unemployment rate to get inflation under control. He came out today and said, we actually want strong wage increases. We just want them consistent with 2% inflation. So if we have 5, 6, 7% wage inflation over the long haul, that will lead to higher rates of inflation. So they want to see people making more money. They don't want to see, you know, depreciation or decrease deflation in, in wages, but it may trend that way. So in looking at it, let's look at the next one here. He says, I wouldn't see us considering rate cuts until the committee is confident inflation is moving down in a sustained way. So that's common sense. And it's pretty consistent with what we saw over the last month and what we've been saying. So great. CPI decreased last month. It decreased again this month. We can give you 14 other measures where inflation seems to be decreasing, but we need to see that for six months, eight months, 10 months. So they are not likely to cut rates anytime in the near future. It would be shocking if they did it in the first half of next year, and it would depend on getting some really negative data, uh, things that we're not expecting at this point. We do expect a recession coming. You've heard us say that repeatedly week after week. We do think that will lead to negative data and the Fed to, to take their foot off the brake and, and actually cut at some point, but not likely to happen in the future. Finally, said something here, a little bit dovish, a little bit peaceful towards the market says, our policy is getting close to sufficiently restrictive. So right now, I didn't look at the Fed funds futures here late in the day, but uh, the guess is here, we're going to get another quarter percent. And after that, possibly another quarter percent. So Jeb and I will keep a close eye on that. We'll be back. We'll tell you what our thoughts are, especially in January when we're looking at a forecast and where things are going to go at that point. This next one here, I wanted to throw in here. It says Wall Street is directing a great deal of attention to a Fed pivot. A pivot doesn't mean, hey, we're going to stop increasing. We're going to pivot and go the other direction. So not only are we not increasing rates, we're decreasing rates. So we just talked about it likely to be a, a little while before that happens. So in here and looking at this, we can see, oh, I jumped the screen there. Um, we've looked at anywhere since 1995 when we've had Fed rate hikes, the time from the last hike to the first cut has varied anywhere from five to 18 months. And it's usually eight, nine, 10, 12, 15 months out before we see a cut. So we just talked here a couple of minutes ago that we are not likely to see them stop hiking until January um, at the earliest. So really, what does it mean? It's gonna be the second half of next year at the earliest that we would see any cuts. And more likely it will be late next year, early into the following year. So we've talked about this before, and I want to go back to this. There are multiple ways that mortgage rates can improve. What this chart shows, this is a 30-year fixed mortgage rate um, that's based off of the Freddie Mac Primary Mortgage Market Survey. It's not a perfect survey, but it's consistent over time. So what is the average weekly mortgage rate less 
the 10-year constant maturity yield. So right now, we're at 2.82%. Take the 10-year treasury, add 2.82% to that, and that's your average mortgage rate as quoted by the Freddie Mac Primary Mortgage Market Survey. Now, the green line here is the important one that we want to look at. Now, this has been down as low as like 1.2%, 1.3%, that spread in the middle of COVID or just after COVID. Um, over the last 10 years, it's averaged 1.8%, that spread. So if the Fed didn't, uh, if we didn't see any more improvement in the 10-year treasury, which we think will happen, if we saw no improvement, we have a potential for mortgage rates to improve a percent from here. So in the very high fives, low sixes to high fours, low fives, if the 10-year treasury didn't move at all, and you may be asking, well, why? Why is there room for improvement? Well, it's the answer is in why are rates so much worse than they historically have been relative to 10-year treasury yields? The reason is when there's a lot of volatility in the markets and rates are moving up quickly, no one really knows how to price how long those loans are going to stay on the books. When we have a peaceful, tranquil market that doesn't move around a lot, lenders will price servicing rights and the value of those loans to stay on the books for about five to seven years. And that's where we get that 1.8% spread. What we saw here is the market said, I don't know, these are high rates. We haven't seen these rates in 20 years. We think rates are likely to go down. And when they do, most of these loans are going to come off the books. We may only have them on the books for one year, two years, three years. So the servicing rights were valued very little. And so we saw this much bigger yield in the actual rate that was being offered. If you've been in the market and you tried to get a loan, very hard to get much of a lender credit, uh, especially if you have lower credit scores or other loan level price adjustments, that will likely normalize. So big picture, that's where we're at. If you're looking at government loans, FHA, VA, uh, best price or best qualified borrowers are, are going to be in the mid fives, low fives, if you want to pay a little bit for that rate, and about a half percent higher than that for conventional loans. So right in that 6% range, if you want to, if you want to pay uh, zero points versus one point. So it gives you a, a nice idea. And that's down at least a percent from where we peaked a few months ago. So with that, let's take a jump in here. It looks like you guys have been asking some some questions. Um, let's start, Alex, I said we would come back to this question and let's definitely do that. When will rates hit the high fives again? We're really close or hit the fives again. We're very close to the high fives right now. Um, someone that wants to pay points, a really well-qualified borrower getting a jumbo loan, a borrower getting an FHA or a VA loan, you're in the fives. So my expectation is for rates to slowly and gradually improve. Don't expect a big, massive improvement. The markets want to see, uh, the, they want to see inflation recede, just like Fed, uh, Fed Powell chair, Fed chair Powell is saying. He wants to see that play out over a period of time. And when we get three, four, five months, we should see that normalize. You know, one of the best bond market experts that I follow thinks by spring will be under five percent. Uh, to me, that could be a little bit aggressive. Don't know if we're going to get there that quickly. But if you're looking at buying first quarter of next year, I'd like to think conventional borrowers are going to be five and a half, five point seven five, and FHA and VA borrowers in, in the low five. So definitely much, much better than where we were a little bit ago. So Janet Santiago basically follows this, this similar question. How do you feel about interest rates next year? I feel interest rates are going to be a lot better than where we peaked at the middle of this year. So if you're looking at a seven, seven and an eighth interest rate and you end up getting a 4.875, that's awesome. 
but it's important that we keep that in context that if you get 4.875, you paid 65% more, you're gonna be paying 65% more in interest than the person who borrowed in December of 2021 or June of 2021 or December of 2020. So in terms of affordability, we've seen home prices increase a ton. And when we also have interest rates go up more and further and faster than that, it's making affordability difficult. Now, I don't have the numbers here. On Wednesdays, we also get uh, weekly uh, mortgage applications. So both refinances and purchases are up. Purchases have been up. Purchase applications have been up five out of the last six weeks. Well, we just looked at these charts. What happened over the last five to six weeks? We saw that CPI number. Some people kind of front run that CPI number. Interest rates have come down. So when I say mortgage purchase applications are up, there's not a stampede of people looking to apply for mortgages. In fact, we are down applications 38% on purchase applications versus this time last year. Refinances are down over 80%. So up, but up from low levels. Um, it's improving, it's trending in the right direction, and it is telling us that that is interest rate sensitive. There are plenty of buyers out there who want to buy who had just said, at 7%, I'm out of the market. At 6%, more of them are interested. At 5%, more still will be interested. So in looking at that, that's, that's what we're thinking. Now, Luis follows up with a question here. Should I sell my house? Question mark. And then follows up with, right now. We talk about this every week. Jeb and I are pretty much in lockstep with this. Um, the, the answer to future direction of home prices comes down to affordability. There's two things that can improve affordability, home prices coming down, interest rates coming down. We've just spent about 30 minutes, 25 minutes talking about interest rates, the direction of interest rates and what we expect to happen going forward. I believe interest rates will improve. It will improve affordability and affordability will be significantly worse. Even when we get to the low end of that range in the next year or two than it was prior to January of 2021 or 2022. So that tells us that is there the potential for home prices to come down? There absolutely is the potential for home prices to come down. That would be the reason why someone would be considering selling right now. I can tell you story after story after story between Jeb and myself of people who tried to time the market. They were convinced, um, you know, Jeb told us a story I think last week of a client in 2018 who decided these prices are nuts. I'm cashing out. I'm going to buy back in in a couple of years when it goes down. And he's priced out. Like he's literally asking Jeb to go through and set up a search for properties that don't exist. He wants to be in Orange County at a price point that single family homes do not exist within. So I've seen far more of those than I've ever seen someone accurately, properly uh, sell near the peak and get out. I will say, and this is certainly not to toot myself, uh, pat myself on the back or toot my own horn, but I can say we sold our first condo here in Huntington Beach right at, you know, within three to six months of the peak of the market in 2005, 2006. And that was because a lot of the data that we were looking at was telling us negative, red flag, bad things going to happen. At that time, um, I have a white paper I could share with you guys, a, a financial planner that I was partners with. Um, we published a white paper that said, we expect home prices in the next two to three years to drop 20%. And that's a pretty aggressive call. And you look back and you're like, dude, you guys weren't even close. Home prices were, were off in most areas, uh, in high priced areas, Southern California, Phoenix, uh, Vegas, those markets lost a lot more than 20%. I don't see that same recipe right now. 
I also don't see a recipe for massive home price increases. I wish for many reasons, I wish Jeb felt better. I wish he was here with us. Um, one of his mentors did a forecast call. Um, he expects very minor appreciation next year. And then the following year, I believe it was about four to 5% appreciation. So does that say you should try to sell? Um, I wouldn't sell unless you needed to move areas. If you knew you were gonna move some point next year, you get a job transfer, um, going through a divorce, any of that stuff, by all means, life causes will dictate that you sell your home, but I wouldn't do it thinking that you're going to time the market and be able to get in at a, a much better point. So let's dig in here and check out a couple more questions. So uh, Safid has a good question here. Can you help me understand the process of getting a HELOC from one of my properties that's under an FHA mortgage? I want to purchase two new investment properties next year that give me cash flow. So let's look um, and just take the first part of the question that would be applicable to anyone. What is the process of getting a home equity line of credit? We talk a lot here that I believe strongly the best path for you to get a low priced mortgage with expert service is to go through a broker. Now, home equity lines of credit are one of the areas where that's not really true. We can get you good options on that, but your lowest priced options in terms of interest rate costs are gonna be from the big banks and more likely credit unions. So if you have a credit union relationship, at least check with them first. Um, the process is not gonna be a lot of fun because you're gonna be dealing with the equivalent of a bank teller. You're going to go through the application process. You're gonna provide all of your documentation to them. Um, depending on the value of your home and how much equity you have, some of these lenders don't do an appraisal. They'll do an AVM. Um, if you're trying to go to a higher loan to value above 80%, you're probably gonna have an appraisal. The lender may or may not pay for that for you. The lender may or may not pay for your closing costs. Really the important part that you're looking at is what is the margin that you are going to pay on top of the prime rate? Almost all HELOCs are tied to the prime rate. Then you pay a margin on top of that. So what are my total fees? What is the margin that you're going to add? And you wanna make sure that you're, if you're just calling and getting quotes from a bank or a credit union, you want to make sure you have an accurate credit score. So go to annual credit score and get that looked up. Don't use something uh, like Credit Karma that's not going to be super accurate. Give them an accurate credit score. Be accurate to conservative to what percentage of the loan to value you're going to borrow. Ask them what your total costs are and ask them what your margin is going to be. And make sure that's not a teaser rate. A lot of banks or credit unions are offering them. It's not a bad thing. It means for six to 12 months, you're going to get a discounted interest rate. But you want to know what that looks like at the end of it. Now, Safid, you had a, a specific question here. You have, uh, you know, from one of my properties, it's under an FHA mortgage. It's suboptimal to put a HELOC behind an FHA loan, because once you do, it makes it really unlikely um, that you're, it makes it less likely that you'll be able to get a new loan that doesn't have mortgage insurance. Now, depending on when you bought that property, you could have a two and a half percent interest rate, a three and a quarter percent interest rate. And even after you factor in the mortgage insurance, a three and a quarter is at 4.1% with your standard FHA 0.85% mortgage insurance. So when rates are at five and a half, six and a half, seven percent, HELOC makes all the sense in the world. But at some point when rates come down, you'll probably want to combine those. So it's suboptimal to do it against an, a, a property secured by a, a, an FHA loan, but um, it can make sense in your situation. So looking at here, this is a good one. And this is one we're getting more and more and more. Can you negotiate with a seller slash seller's lender to keep their existing rate as a condition to buy their house? This comes up almost every week. So let's look at it in these terms. Most loans 
are not assumable, meaning post-1983, I believe it is, the Supreme Court allowed due-on-sale clauses. So a loan originated after 1983, which 93, 2003, 2013, basically every loan that was a 30-year loan that was originated before then has been paid off. So nearly every loan ah, has a due-on-sale clause. So if there's a transfer of title, the lender has the option. They're not required to. They don't have to. And many times, most times, they don't. If there's a change in beneficial ownership interest, they can call the loan due. So what are the exceptions? The exceptions are some adjustable rate mortgages. All VA loans, all FHA loans are assumable. So there's a process. You have to go to the lender and prove that you are creditworthy. It's not just anyone can take over that loan. So instead of coming to a lender like me, you're going to go to the owner's lender and say, hey, I really like their 2.5% interest rate. I would like to assume it. Now let's look at an example. Let's say those folks bought um, a month before COVID breaks out, before any of us ever heard of COVID. Home prices are up about 40%, 35 to 40% in that time. So say they bought a $400,000 house. If we're up 40%, it's $160,000. You're looking at a $560,000 home. They've paid that mortgage down. If they did a VA zero down loan, they've probably paid it down $20,000, $15,000 since then, plus the appreciation of $160,000. That means they have $175,000 of equity. They don't want to just walk away from that. So you would have to make a large enough down payment to give them all their equity or get a second mortgage that would cover the difference or get the seller to carry a second mortgage. Instead of walking away from escrow with a big check, they're walking away from escrow with a promissory note from you that over five years, 10 years, 30 years, you're going to pay them back. So you absolutely can do it. It's not nearly as simple as folks want to paint it. Um, one of the big things here that's gained a lot of traction that I've seen here just in the last couple of weeks is people jumping up and talking about taking a loan subject to the existing financing. So cool, we'll get around the due on sale clause, We'll just take it subject to. Um, I'm not going to touch that until Jeb gets back. And better yet, I know that within the next week, he's going to be releasing a video going through this. So we'll give a, a little hype to that. Watch it when it comes out. You're probably going to hear this. You know, eight months ago, the big thing was buy downs, 2-1 buy down, temporary buy down. Now everyone's talking about subject to deals. They're not likely to happen. There's some reasons for that. And Jeb's going to go through it. I shouldn't have given away the, the ending, the punchline to the joke. But Jeb will walk you through all the details on that. So here, this is a good question. Terp305 says, what does the Delta spread tell us today's rate should be? When will that begin to normalize? I think we are seeing that normalize. Let's go back and, and look at this chart here. So 2.82 versus 1.79, the difference there is 1.03%. So if conventional loans are in the low sixes to 6% right now, we should be around 5% if we were closer to this historical average. That's what it tells us it should be. FHA loans, VA loans, maybe four and a half right now. So when is this going to happen? Well, it looks like we've already seen some of it happening. We were up at 3% and now we're down at 2.82. So we saw how long this took. This took all year for this to happen, for that spread to get so large. It may take a year for it to normalize. But I expect we're going to see the 10-year treasury to continue to trend down. Won't be a straight line. It'll go down, pop back up, go down, pop back up. 
but this is also going to trend down as soon as lenders are convinced that we've seen rates normalize, and especially once they get to a lower level. If they're doing loans today at 6% and they think rates are gonna end up at 5%, they're still not happy to put those loans on the books. They're not gonna pay a lot for those servicing rights. So as we get closer to a more normal rate somewhere, plus or minus 5%, five and a quarter, four and three quarters, I think you will see lenders paying more for servicing rights and see that normalize some more. So looking here, This is, this is a good one, and I wish Jeb was here. He'd give you a better answer than this, but I'm going to do my best. Just looking, 101-323. Question, bought a house in California, received a letter in the mail from the county about a claim for homeowner's property tax exemption. What are the pros and cons? How will that affect me? Essentially, if you're living in the property, the homeowner's property tax exemption gives you a dollar amount that will come off of your assessed value. In California, it's very low. In other states like Florida, that homestead exemption is very large uh, and will make a big decrease in your property taxes. So bottom line, the easy answer is if you're here in California and this is an occupied owner occupied residence and you're eligible for that homeowner's property tax exemption, you're going to want to do it, but it doesn't make a big difference for us here. So well, 2.0 sports back with another question. And this one, there's there's not a, a right answer to this. So let's try and give you some some guardrails on making that decision of what your best and worst case and most likely outcome is. So the question is, what is the best option? A family of five renting a three-bedroom, two-bath, 1500 square foot apartment for $1,700 or buying their dream home that will cost $3,500 a month. What is the best approach, please? So, <clears throat> excuse me, two ways that we have to look at this. We have to look at today, and we have to look at the long haul, probably the intermediate as well. So look at three years, five years, 10 years, 15 years. You know, 30 years is a long ways off. Most people don't stay in a home and in a mortgage during that time frame, but Jim and I did an episode of the podcast, um, which will be up, um, I believe it's already up. It was up Tuesday and it will uh, it will be on the YouTube channel, the new YouTube channel for the podcast here shortly. But we talked about why is home ownership for nearly everyone the right answer over the long haul. So there's many factors here that we have to look at. So right now, the first question you have to answer is, can I qualify for the $3,500 a month payment? So if so, it's an option. I can say, do I live here in a place that we're not, we're not dying. We have plenty enough room. We have plenty enough bedrooms. We're uncomfortable and we don't have uh, many of the benefits of home ownership, but we pay $1,700. I can double that essentially is what we're looking at here. I can double that and I can own that home. So in the short run, what are the intangible benefits of that in enjoyment, um, space? Do you have a garage? Is it a safer area, better schools? Any of those things that you would benefit from immediately, as well as just your own personal joy and satisfaction. Is it worth doubling my housing expense? That's a decision that only you can make. Now let's look at over time. I don't have a spreadsheet in front of me, don't know the purchase price where we come out to a $3,500 payment, but let's say um, a couple of things that are very important here. If you take out a 30-year fixed mortgage, you know that for the next 30 years, the principal and interest payment on that mortgage is going to be the same, even if we never get an opportunity to refinance at a lower rate, which we just spent 25 minutes on it saying why we believe there will be an opportunity to refinance at a lower rate and lower that payment. But your worst case, you've set your payment in stone. We've watched inflation and rents over the last two years go insane. 
they will normalize and come down. But even if we looked at a normal rate over time, if rents go up 2% a year, your rule of 72 says it's going to double in 36. So we're probably going to go up 35, 40% in the next 15 years. So when we take that into account, that $1,700 in the next 10 to 15 years is going to be $3,500. The $3,500 is likely to be less as you refinance to a lower interest rate. Yes, depending on where you are, your property taxes can go up, your homeowner's insurance can go up, but the biggest portion of that payment is going to be fixed. What's also likely to happen over the long haul? We answered a question here a few minutes ago. I don't know what happens in the next 12 months with home prices. There is a possibility that home prices will drop. If we look out 10 years from now, I'm quite confident that home prices are going to be higher than they are today. From the biggest crash we've ever seen in home prices, from the peak to the trough, back to the peak was a round trip of about 10 years. So I don't expect that if we see decreases that it's going to look anything of that magnitude. And I do expect that we will see increases. So if we had a 3% annual increase over the next 10 years, that home price is 30% higher. So if it's a $400,000 house, it's now $520,000. So you got to benefit from a fixed payment, possibly lowering it to $300 a month at some point during that time frame while rents are going up. You've benefited from the appreciation over that 10-year time frame, $100,000, $120,000. And a portion of that $3,500 that you're paying now is a forced savings account. It's the portion of your principal and interest payment that goes to principal. You're reducing the principal every month. So you have more equity in your home, assuming that, that home prices stay level. So if you look at that, $3,500 payment, maybe five or $600 goes towards principal. Call it $600. That's $7,200 a year. In 10 years, we paid 80 or $100,000 of principal while the home value went up $100,000, $120,000. And the rent is now close to, if not more expensive than what your starting mortgage payment was, which has decreased over time due to interest rates. So in a nutshell, that's the case for home ownership over the long haul. In the short run, you have to determine, this is a tough one. It's a bitter pill to swallow, right? Um, it's not like we're saying, hey, uh, it's rent $1,700 or own $2,200. Most people would say, I'll pay an extra 500 to be an owner. Um, if you come down on the side of this, you say renting makes more sense for me, make sure that you're taking a chunk of that $1,800 monthly savings, 500, 600, $700, putting it into your 401k, putting it into an IRA, investing it. If you want to buy a home at some point in the future, a Roth IRA is a really good vehicle for that because the principal contributions to the Roth IRA, you can always take out. Um, you can't take out the growth on that, but you can take out the principal and use that for a down payment on a home uh, further on in the future. We talk about this all the time. Over the long haul, two thirds of American households choose to be homeowners. Most people would prefer that, but this is definitely a, a dilemma here that we have to go through. So we have our friend Willing here who shows up kindly every week and says things that none of us understand. So good evening, Wolf, Louise, and Lego. Sushi or is fresh. So there's only one of us here tonight, but all three of us got greetings. And speaking of our friend Jennifer Lego, um, Jeb believes that she told us that she ended up taking another job. We haven't seen her in a while. Maybe if we're lucky here through the holidays or first part of January, she'll be free on a Wednesday night and can join us. She certainly doesn't need to uh, moderate for us, but it would be nice to have her back here. So next question here is another good one. Alexis Lara, question. What do you think about buying down the rate two to one? Example, buying down from six and a half to four and a half for the first year, then back up to five and a half the second year. I like it, but I want to make sure that you know what you're doing and why and who is paying for it. So generally the lender 
can pay for it uh, with a, a lender credit. You can't pay for it as a buyer. So the seller is going to pay for it in a credit, which your alternative would be, let's just say a 2-1 buy down costs a little less than two points. For a really easy example, let's say it costs two points. $500,000 loan, two point cost is $10,000. You can ask the seller to pay that for you, or you can ask the seller to sell you the house for $490,000. So on a temporary buy down, in essence, what are they doing? They're prepaying a portion of the interest for the first two years in that $10,000. What I really like about the temporary buy down is that let's say six months from now, rates are a percent lower and you can refinance to what the second year rate would be, but keep that for the full 30 years. The benefit is the money that is left in your escrow account, because that's what happens. The, the two points, the $10,000 seller credit goes to an escrow impound account. And when you make your payment every month, you're making a portion of it. And then that additional interest is coming off of that account. So in six months, maybe only a third of that money has been used. With a temporary buy-down, that additional two-thirds of that escrow balance, so we're talking $10,000, $6,000, $6,500, is going to come off of your payoff demand. So the lender's going to say, hey, they owe us $498,000, but we've got $6,500 in this impound account, so they actually owe us $491,500. If you take that same $10,000, two points will generally permanently buy down an interest rate a half percent. As soon as you do a permanent buy-down, that money's gone. It's a sunk cost. You can never get it back. So just ask yourself why you're doing this. An important thing to note with a temporary buy down, it doesn't help you qualify for any more home because we have to qualify you at the note rate, not that temporarily bought down rate. So you're going to have a nice lower payment for the first two years, especially the first year, but we're going to qualify you at the, the actual note rate. So you're not getting any benefit there. The reason why you might lean towards towards a permanent buy down is you would have to qualify for more. But again, going back to that temporary 2-1 buy down, 1-0 buy down, 3-2-1 buy down, the money is set aside for your benefit. You can It's not a sunk cost. You get the lower payment. doesn't help you qualify for more, but that may be a good thing. It's making sure you're not overbuying and overextending yourself. So with that, um, I like the option. Just make sure that it's not something being sold to you by a loan officer and they're able to pencil out both of them and go through the pros and the cons with you. So let me actually use that here uh, as a, a point here to, to remind you, Jeb and I have a big referral network. So if you want to get connected with a lender in your area, a realtor in your area, we have expert professionals that can help you. So if you have a question and you're not already working with a lender that you're comfortable with, really knows buy downs and can walk you through this, use that referral link and we can get you connected with someone. We'll get you the answers that you need there. So look at this. I forgot, didn't even see. We have Mr. Jeb. He is watching from home. Says, sorry not to be able to be there tonight, guys. Definitely came down with something. Props to Josh for filling in. And I say, no, my friend. Thank you for uh, for letting me fill your seat. Uh, he's told me. He's obviously done this multiple times here by himself. And he has told me uh, how much work it is doing it by yourself where you don't have a chance to scan the other questions and you're constantly talking the whole time. And he's 100% right. It's definitely more difficult without him. We wish he was here. We wish he was feeling better. And we wish we could have got the uh, additional work done there that we wanted to get done. So hopefully you're still watching, Jeb. We have lots of good wishes for you here. Uh, the Knights say feel better job, Jeb. Uh, Anya says, thank you, Josh. Get well, Jeb. We've got 2.0 Sports says feel better, amigo. Janet Santiago, be safe, Jeb. 
Dina Mastin says, uh, feel better, Jeb. And the important part is there, we hope that she doesn't get too many requests for her Instagram uh, handle now that we've posted that there. So let's dig in here and see if we have some uh, some questions here. So Kelsey Angel has a really, really good one. And this will lead us back to getting you a referral. Um, the, the question here is, is it normal for a lender to have a half percent interest rate margin spread higher than the national average interest rate? I would say it's not normal. There can be very good reasons for it. When you look at that national average, it doesn't take into account any loan level price adjustments. Meaning if you have a lower credit score, there's going to get uh, an add-on to that interest rate. You're going to pay a higher interest rate. If you're putting a lower down payment, there's a loan level price adjustment. If you're buying two units, three units, four units, if it's non-owner occupied, all those things are going to lead to a rate higher than the national average. But assuming you're putting a normal down payment, you have a good credit score, that should not be the case. A lender should be in the range, let's say plus or minus a quarter percent of, of that national average. And if they're not, they should be able to show you. It's really easy. If you and I are talking and you go, whoa, that's way higher than what I was seeing online um, or in terms of the Freddie Mac primary mortgage market survey, or we talk about the optimal blue mortgage market index, we'll pull that up and I'll pull up. If you're getting a conventional loan, let's look at the, the LLPA matrix and say, well, we've got this hit because you have a 650 credit score instead of a 750 credit score. We've got this hit because you're buying a condo and you're putting less than 25% down. Um, all of those things can come into play. So it's possible that there's a very good reason and explanation for it. More likely you're talking to a retail lender. Um, we're not going to name names. We're not going to shame anyone here. The crazy thing is um, talk to a client this morning. She didn't know that I had a way of assisting her in Florida. She bought here in California um, or refinanced in California with her husband, soon to be ex-husband and is buying now in Florida. And she says, well, I got pre-approved. I didn't know you could help me. She says, but this is the rate. And it was about a half percent higher than, than what we could do for her. And in looking at it, I did a little bit of research. It looks like she's dealing with a really good loan officer. Okay, I did about $60 million in loans last year. So 50 or $5 million a month, probably doing eight, 10, 12 loans. Been in the business a long time. He's a branch manager. It's a reputable company, but a lot of these big national retail chains, they have awesome real estate. They have lots of levels of, of mid-level management. And because of that bloated cost structure, their interest rates are going to look worse. So again, let me reiterate and backstep and say, it could be a very valid rate. It could be you're paying too much. The best thing you can do is get a second opinion. Call another lender, give them the details. Here's my credit score. Here's the type of loan that they're suggesting for me. Here's how much I'm putting down and get a quote, see what it looks like. And then call your lender that you're dealing with now and ask them on the same day. One of the most frustrating things we just talked about in the last 45 days, rates are down three quarters of a percent. If we talked two weeks ago and you talk to someone else today, of course their rate is going to be better because rates have dropped in the last couple of weeks. So make sure when you get that second opinion, call the lender you're talking to and say, hey, just wanted to update and see what my rate would look like today. And it's possible that they're in line. Um, it's possible that that quote they gave you is a couple of days out of date. But get a second opinion. Um, and like we always say here, interest rate is important. But if you're looking at what you're making a decision on, Reputable lenders should be in a very narrow range in terms of rates, fees, points, all that fun stuff. So if that is true, the more important thing is that you're dealing with someone with knowledge and experience. And then the last piece of it is that you have a good rapport with. I could be the smartest, greatest loan officer in the world with really good interest rates. If you don't have a rapport where you feel like you can ask me tough questions, that you can get things explained to your satisfaction, that you get a call back or an email back in a timely manner, 
That's important. You need to make sure you're working with a lender that can cover all those bases. They have uh, competitive terms, they're knowledgeable, and then most importantly, you have a rapport and a connection with them. All three of those, I, I would give nearly equal weight. You may weight them slightly differently, but they're all very important. So please do not just make a decision off of an interest rate. If you want a second opinion, we still have the link down there in the scroll where you can reach out, get connected with a lender in your area, and any lender would be happy to do that. And, and my thing is, if you call me and there's a reason why that rate's a half percent higher and we go through it, I'm not going to tell you, hey, you should use me. Your guy sucks. We're going to go... I get it. I don't like that interest rate any more than you do, but it seems to be valid. Did you like the guy? Does he seem to be in, in, uh, knowledgeable, know what he's doing? Do you have a good rapport? And it could be a girl also. We have lots of excellent female loan officers in the industry. So whoever you're talking to, uh, do you feel like you're in good hands? So with that, let's move on to the next question. The immortal, illustrious Al Bundy is back. What happens to the mortgage after someone passes away? Let's say a parent passes away. Can the child just make the payments? Does probate factor into this? So that transfer does not trigger the due on sale clause. So someone passing away, it's probably why you were asking this. We were talking about um, taking over someone else's loan, a subject to deal, a loan assumption. Death does not trigger a due on sale. So if you legally inherit the property, you are bound by the terms of that loan. The note spells what interest rate you're going to pay, what the schedule is for repaying. Um, the, the deed of trust is going to be transferred. You're, you know, an example I can give you is in 2020. Um, unfortunately, we lost my father in late 2020. We went through, we didn't have to go through the probate process, but I was the trustee of his trust uh, and we went through it and we transferred title. We have to provide the, the documentation that shows that my sister and I are the legal heirs, that my father had indeed passed away. Um, it's an affidavit of death that is filed and then that gets transferred into our name. Um, did not trigger, in his case, he didn't have a loan on the property. The only case where I would say be prepared for the opposite is if you have a reverse mortgage on the property that will be triggered by death. It says in the documentation, and the reason for that is a reverse mortgage, reverse, instead of paying it down on a forward mortgage, a reverse mortgage, that balance is going to increase. And that decision to lend was based off of the age of the homeowner. Obviously, someone else could be much younger. It will trigger uh, a, a a requirement to pay that loan off. So those are things you'd want to be aware of on that one. So let's jump in here. Renee Jones. I love that hair, Renee. That's fantastic. Um, let's go through here. So I live in Texas. Sellers are slashing their listing price. We're talking $20,000. I tried offering $15,000 less than the seller listing price. The owner is not biting. Should I offer to cover repair costs? I, again, this is a great question for Jeb. He's out negotiating contracts on a daily basis. We come uh, as a lender a little bit behind that in the process. Um, I don't know what the, the difference is. You know, I, I would stick with a standard offer where you're going to negotiate repairs after you have your inspection, but maybe be more aggressive on the price. I mean, if you expect that there to be significant repairs, five, ten thousand dollars of repairs why not just go to them and get them $5,000 less than their price? And a point that I always like to make to everyone, when home prices were going up rapidly and we we're having problems with homes appraising for the sale price, we had people saying, I, this is crazy. I'm paying more than the home is worth. The appraisal doesn't dictate what the home is worth. The asking price also doesn't dictate what the home is worth. It could be worth more than they're asking. People use that strategy of pricing low and, and wanting more than that. I had a client a few weeks ago. This was insane here in Los Angeles. She offered $1.2 million on a house. That was the ask price. I'm like, oh, we're going to get this one. You know, the home's been on the market for 22 days and she's giving them list price. 
the listing agent comes back and says, oh, they're hoping to get one five. Well, you've been on the market at one two for 21 days. That's unlikely to happen in the current market, but you can hope and wish and want all you want. So hopefully your realtor can walk you through the comparable sales and come to a number that you are comfortable with and can express that to the seller of why you're making the offer uh, that you do. We talk about this all the time on the show. Some sellers are irrational. Your offer could be completely rational and they're just not gonna hear it. And on the flip side, we do have buyers. We have buyers that are irrational. They want a deal on every transaction. I have a buyer that's pre-approved. Jeb wrote probably 20 offers over the last 18 months and he's been 25,000 under the selling price on every one. And during that time, home prices in his price range have gone up $185,000. So because he wouldn't step up and be the winning bidder, even though he's spectacularly well qualified, never got a property. So hopefully that's helpful there. Um, Jeb, if you're there again, our friend Al Bundy says, get well, Jeb. Um, Kim, you had on here, what's the website you mentioned in the past where we could look up your current credit score? I believe I actually use Experian. Um, if you do the subscription with Experian four times a year, you can get an actual real three bureau uh, report and it's not tremendously expensive, but it is about $20 a month and it is a real accurate report. Um, but I believe, yeah, it's annualcreditreport.com. Once a year, you can get a free three bureau credit report. It's not as pretty and easy to read as what I could give you if we're getting you pre-approved for a mortgage or what you would get through Experian, but it'll get you the info and you don't have to pay anything for it. So I will post that in the comments. It's annual credit report, not report.com. Okay. Alex Solano, Josh, do you know if loan servicers care what the deductibles and coverage of homeowners insurance are, or is that up to the borrower? My insurance agent said I can adjust some values to lower my premium. Um, they want to know that the home will get replaced. Let's say there's a fire and burns the thing to the ground and you have a $400,000 mortgage and you only insured for $200,000. You don't have to insure to the mortgage amount, but if you have $200,000 of coverage, they want to know that you have guaranteed replacement cost coverage that will, if it costs $225,000 or $250,000 or $275,000, they will rebuild it. The insurance company is going to run their numbers. They're going to say based off of your location, your square footage, uh, the roof type, the foundation type, all of that. They're going to say our estimate to rebuild your property is this. Um, if the lender is loaning you more than that, they're going to want to know there's a guaranteed replacement cost. The deductibles, you probably could get up to a level where a lender wouldn't be comfortable with it. But usually, even to the max of what lenders, uh, insurers are comfortable with, lenders are comfortable with. I have $10,000 deductible on mine. I've lived in my home for 20 years. I've never had a claim. Um, that being said, uh, we did that on the house that I flipped last year. And the seller who had destroyed the house had also sabotaged the house. And uh, as soon as the water got turned on, we had a flood. And we had about $19,000 of damage with a $10,000 deductible. So it cuts both ways. Um, but if you have a reasonably new home, you take good care of it, and you would kind of like to self-insure some of that um, with a higher deductible, by all means. But uh, just weigh it out. What does your cash position look like? If something negative were to happen, can you afford that? So Jesse says, makes a good point here. Your Roth can also crash and burn like mine did this past year. Earlier in the show, we talked about a Roth being a good savings vehicle. If you're saving for a short-term goal, like buying a home in the next two years, don't invest in aggressive vehicles. Um, 
do do things that are less aggressive, less potential downturn that will get you obviously most likely a smaller return as well. But you're still um, going to have that money available to you when it comes time to make the purchase, whether it's a car, a home, college education, whatever it is. So it is important to, to remember that. So we had a good question here. Anya says, what do you need to make a 401k withdrawal to help with down payments? Important here to remember there's two separate things here. Hardship withdrawal. If you make that withdrawal, you're going to pay a penalty if you're under 59 and a half and you're going to pay taxes on that. They're going to issue you a tax statement at the end of the year. It gets added to your income and you're going to pay a chunk on that. So whenever possible, we recommend do not do that. Now, taking a loan, um, you can borrow up to $50,000 against your 401k, depending on your balance uh, and what percentages of your plan are allowed to be borrowed. Um, in either one of these situations, if you want to do the withdrawal, uh, the hardship is basically on buying a home. So they're going to want to see the contract. They're going to want to see the closing estimated closing statement and show what are we using these funds for. So we can get you the documentation that you need. Um, there's a, a form. It's not really an application. You're not asking them. You're giving them the information they need to give you the info. But um, 401k loan can be a very good source of down payment funds. It's your own money. You're going to repay it to yourself. Don't recommend a hardship withdrawal, but that would be uh, how you would go about it. Ah, this is a tough question. Willing, Willing pops up and says, what Christmas gifts should I get for my family? I'm thinking Thomas Kincaid painting artwork for my dad and maybe a sapphire ring for my mom. The stone of wisdom, should I cool me jets and get books? I think books are good. I think books are good. I think Thomas Kincaid paintings are not. Um, is your dad 80 years old and kind of not stylish? He might like a Thomas Kincaid painting. Otherwise, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. And jewelry is clearly not my thing. Um, so I can't give you any uh, any advice on that. And here, Anya is going to tell me that I am 100% wrong. She says, Thomas Kincaid are great. She has three copies and displays them proudly. And the fact that they're you know, in shopping centers around the country with very high price tags, clearly uh, there are plenty of people who agree with that and, uh, and, and happily pay for them. So we just gave you two conflicting answers. Hopefully that helped. Ah, uh, what in the heck? Jeb is heckling me. I don't appreciate this, Jeb. I'm going horse here, answering all the questions with no help from you while you're recovering. Jeb says, thanks for the well wishes to all of you. And then says, Josh, you screwed up your lights again. I'm hoping he means the overhead light, which I reached out and turned on when the, I poked my arm out there. So just a little background here. We both have the same uh, pro proximity sensor light switches. Um, I switched mine where it turns off after 30 minutes, but if it's off, like we want for the show, and then you move in front of it, it will pop back on. Jeb just unhooked his entirely. So when he moves in and out of his office, it'll stay on for hours. And unsurprisingly, at least once a week, Jeb will go home and leave his light on. So we're like Felix and Oscar over here. Um. Let's go here. Andy Rue, how much is foundation work? I'm seeing a few houses in my market needing this and are staying in the market for a while. Are we looking 10,000 or a lot higher? Um, this could be all over the place. So if you're thinking about that home, put a contingency in there for a foundation inspection. If they're putting that expense on you and you're agreeing to pay for it, fine. But I want to do my research and know what I'm getting into. Um, I did a house out in Fullerton Hills uh, about 10, 11, 12 years ago, the entire back of the house had dropped about four inches. It was very common in that neighborhood. The builder had not uh, compacted the soil well. And I think we ended up paying about $40,000 for that. I've also seen situations where seven, eight, ten thousand $10,000 can repair a foundation. So it can be all over the place. 
you're going to want to make your offer and have it contingent upon the inspection. And probably you want to tell the seller, here's kind of the range that I'm expecting and comfortable paying. If it comes in more than that, we're going to have to renegotiate what I'm paying. They may already have an inspection. They may already have got a bid. I'm not saying I would rely on that, but it'd be a good and quick and easy place to start if they could tell you that. Okay. VAR Watch says, how long does it take until the loan closes? Question number one. Number two, how many lenders can one use to compare rates or are all lenders' rates the same? Let's take number one. Number one is going to depend on volume, type of loan, how complex your situation is. I would say 60, 70% of clients have pretty straightforward situations. And with the current level of loan volume, 14 to 17, 17 days is probably the shortest window. We have to get an appraisal back. Um, escrow and title have to do some work. Payoff demands have to come in. 21 days is fairly safe. 30 days is very safe. Um, barring something unforeseen uh, and extremely complex in your loan, every lender should in the current market be able to close loans in less than 30 days. Um, the exception would be reverse mortgages, um, construction loans, 203Ks, weird outside of the box stuff like that. But if you're getting a standard FHA, VA, USDA, Fannie, Freddie, even a jumbo loan, 30 days should be more than enough. We just talked about uh, loan applications are down 38% year over year. Refinance applications are down 80% year over year. Lenders have a time and the ability to get through your stuff. So the question, second one there, how many lenders can one use to compare rates or all lenders rates the same? You can get 100 lenders quotes if you want. I don't recommend it. You'll confuse yourself. You don't need to. If you feel like uh, you want to shop, what I would say is talk to the first lender, look at the quote they're giving you, and then compare it. We had a question here just a minute ago about how it compares to the national averages. Go to the Optimal Blue Mortgage Market Index, um, put in your credit score, your type of loan, and see what's the average. See, are we close to that? Um, if you feel like you want quotes, you didn't have a great feeling, you don't just say, I'm absolutely working with that lender, you wanna check and compare, call one to two other lenders. And I would go in different channels. If you talk to me and I'm a mortgage broker, maybe call your bank and call one of those direct lenders. And let's just see what those numbers look like. They don't need a complete loan application to get you an accurate quote. I will happily give you all the information that you need to shop that interest rate. And that's primarily how much money am I putting down? What type of loan program are we talking about? What's my credit score? With that, you can get a very accurate quote. You want to know not only what is the interest rate, because again, when shopping for rates, I get this all the time. Um, had a client the other week. Uh, we have him pre-approved. He's putting in an offer. He sends over, hey, I also got pre-approved by Wells Fargo. They can do 4.375. Can you match that? Look at it and they go 4.375. That's uh, actually it was 5.375. 4.375 would be amazing. It was 5.375. So I look up on their website. They're not offering that. I look at the documentation. It was not a loan estimate that he had received. It was his pre-approval letter. They had put in the pre-approval letter. The interest rate was 5.375. It also said that his uh, APR was 5.99. The APR is not the interest rate that you're paying, but it is a way of determining or, or calculating and showing you how much you're paying for that loan. Other things being equal, you want the APR to be as close to the note rate as possible. In this situation with this 5.375 quote, it was a 5.99 APR. A little quick, you know, backing our way into the number, it showed that he was going to pay five points for his loan if he got that interest rate. And he obviously had no interest in that. So a long way of saying, Get 
a loan estimate. And if they're not giving you a loan estimate, which again, oftentimes I don't, but I will show you what is in box A of the loan estimate. If we give you a fee worksheet, which many lenders will, it's actually easier for you to read, easier for us to prepare. Um, but we can highlight on there what's included in box A of the loan estimate. When you're shopping among lenders, do it all in the same day because rates change. Sometimes even intraday they'll change, but definitely check within the same day, same loan program, same credit score, and interest rate and box A fees because so many lenders will give you an amazing interest rate and they don't mention that there's $20,000 of fees that you don't have or don't want to pay in box A. So with that, look at Jeb's all over it. He'd already piped, typed in here annualcreditreport.com for, for Kim and I. Appreciate that, Jeb. Um, let's go here. Ali Trinidad, question. As Fed's meeting over next few months, what's the worst case for mortgage rate increases? Closing on new build in March and still floating rate. Um, go back and watch the first 20, 30 minutes of the show. It sounds like you probably came in here a, a little bit later. Um, we go through that. I do not believe rates are going to be higher. Fed rate increases, do the increases to the Fed funds rate, which the Fed directly um, chooses and impacts, do not directly translate to mortgage rates. We have some charts in there that should explain that to you. I would absolutely keep a close eye on it. Is it possible rates could be higher in the spring? It is possible. So keep a close eye on it. Keep in contact with your lender. But as for right now, I would advise anyone with a longer term uh, time horizon to be cautiously floating because rates are likely uh, to get better. Good question here. VAR watch back with another one. Since the Fed has stopped purchasing mortgage-backed securities, do you think it will impact home prices to the downside? Also, who typically buys mortgage-backed securities from the Fed if they sell them? Um, it's the same institutional investors that are buying them in the primary market. When Freddie have a big issuance, um, whoever is there bidding on them at the auctions are the same type of buyers. It's an open market like any other bond. So don't necessarily know who the buyers are. Lots of institutional buyers for different reasons. So let's go back to the first part of the question. Do you think it will impact home prices to the downside? How would it impact home prices? It would impact home prices if it forced interest rates higher, made affordability worse, and there was less demand because we had less able buyers. That's how it would impact uh, home prices to the downside. Um, if we look, there's so much less issuance of mortgage-backed securities this year that if we back away what the Fed was buying, there are still less mortgages to be sold this year than last year. Um, that was part of the issue earlier in the year that was pushing rates higher because we have less supply, but also less demand and people are worried and not as eager to buy because they think rates are going to go up, which is going to decrease the value of the mortgage-backed securities they buy. Um, as we see that rates have likely peaked and are going to slowly and gradually improve, it should increase demand from buyers and the supply is well down. So the Fed may choose to sell into that market at some point, um, but price stability is an important part of what the Fed is charged with. And price stability would include homes. Um, Powell has talked about wanting to see some moderation and normalization in home prices. I don't think they would want to put any downward pressure. If they aggressively came to market and just dumped everything in, would it have an impact? Yes. It's a very unlikely to happen. I don't think it's something that we need to worry about. Let's go here. So Dina Mastin says, question, where can I go to obtain yearly property tax amounts of a property? So if you're online, 
Um, Redfin does a very good job of this. I can't speak for every part of the country, most parts of the country that they, they do. And if I remember correctly, you're on the East coast, you are not here in California. Um, in California, you always got to take it with a grain of salt because that's going to show you what the current rate, uh, property tax amount is, which could be significantly lower as it's limited by prop 13. If you're outside of California, it's going to be pretty close to what you're going to get uh, assessed at. So check Redfin. If you can't check Redfin, um, you can generally look up parcel numbers at most county assessor's offices. Uh, we are in 2022, I would say most, but I would also guarantee that not all county assessor's offices are digital uh, and allow you to look it up. But if you can find the listing, find the parcel number, go to the county assessor, you can track it that way if it's not uh, available there. Okay, I may have, I may have opened up a can of worms. We also have Miss Shadow Llama is with me, also not a fan of Thomas Kincaid. Um, and then Anya points out correctly, winter, summer, and garden. I believe that's a, a Thomas Kincaid quote. And then we had here, uh, Willing pipes in and says Thomas K is the artist of lights. So this is this is nearing the level of Dr. Ben. So thank you, Anya. So basically you're saying pull the trigger immediately on the Thomas Kincaid purchase. It will arrive 1230. Is that unnegotiable? So I think Anya is 100% in favor of the Thomas Kincaid. I am 100% against, and it appears as though you do not value my opinion at all. Anya follows up here. Yes, I've had mine for about 15 years. They're like a storybook page, charming and contain home or church, which is real estate. So she does have a good point there. All right, guys. Um, if I missed any questions, I apologize. We've been going for about 70 minutes. I literally think we rolled through and got all of them. It is the holiday season. We've got about 150 of you here. So with no Jeb and it being the holidays, I'm considering that uh, a victory for the show and the channel. Um, again, we've got the scroll here. If you need to be connected with a real estate or mortgage professional anywhere in the country, Jeb and I have big networks. Use his link there. We will get you connected. Um, if you're in California um, and many adjacent states, uh, I can help you directly. If you have any questions, you can, can reach out. You can get me through that referral link. My email is josh at buywisemortgage.com. Uh, you could do that as well, but use the referral link. Jeb will get that over to me. We'll get your questions answered and see how we can help. So um, big, most important thing is that we hope next Wednesday, uh, Jeb is back here with us and feeling a ton better. Um, you guys may or may not know, he's pretty tough and very rarely takes a sick day. He would tell you he's very healthy and is never sick. Um, it's partially true, but he's also tough and doesn't like to take a sick day. So him being out today is uh, definitely outside of the norm. So we're all going to hope for a speedy recovery and hope that he is back in here for us next month. So thank you guys for being here. Thank you for tolerating me and uh, not having Jeb here to uh, to just be his sidekick. Hopefully it wasn't too bad uh, and you guys enjoyed the show. Uh, we'll be back uh, the next couple of weeks. We kind of fall off of the holidays of Christmas and New Year. So we'll definitely be here. Probably a shorter show like we've had here. And we'll be pointing towards the, the new year and getting some forecasts, both our forecast and what other experts are projecting, um, both home prices, home values, and interest rates. So thanks again. Have a great week. And in the immortal words of Jeb, adios. Thanks for listening to The Educated Home Buyer. Want to connect with us or to a local expert in your area? Please reach out at theeducatedhomebuyer.com slash expert. If you found any value today, please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. In addition, we ask that you share it with your friends and subscribe to us on YouTube. And make sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening.